0: Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to The Dealmaker Show. So today we have an entrepreneur from Europe, an entrepreneur from Europe that came here to go after the American dream and to really establish himself in the US. And I think that he has done so with a bang. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our our guest today, Felix van de Maile. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, thank you. Thanks for having me. So originally born in Belgium. So how was life growing up there? It was good. It
1: was good. We were born in a small town called Ostend at the coast of Belgium. Uh it was great growing up, uh being at the beach every every day. Uh it was a, it was a good place to grow up.
0: So definitely a good place to grow up, but uh, a weird place to get into computers, you know, like having the beach so close to you. So how do you get into computers and then end up, you know, studying computer science?
1: Yeah, it was interesting. It's it's a memory that I'll never forget the first time we actually got internet connection in in our city. I I got it right away. And then I remember the first time I actually published, I built a website and published it online. And I thought that's just such a powerful feeling to have to be able to publish something that's now accessible to the whole world. We thought it was incredibly powerful. It was very early. It was in, I don't don't know, uh, I was maybe 10 years old or so. It was incredibly powerful, and I've been I've been passionate about the internet and computers ever since. And then ultimately decided to uh, to study computer science.
0: And obviously that 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 gave you the opportunity to travel the world a little bit. So what did you learn from going to places like Argentina?
1: Yeah, exactly. So I I studied a master computer science in Brussels, which was great. It was only four years, so I thought four years isn't enough. I wanted to see the world, and so I decided to do another master, specifically in software engineering. Um, And then I studied for six months in France and Nantes, which is great. And then I had to um, kind of write my my master thesis and had the option to go to kind of Southern America. So it's either Argentina, Mexico, Brazil, and the Argentina sounded really, really great. So I went to La Plata, which is a a city close to Buenos Aires. There uh, stayed there for five months, Uh, wrote my my master thesis, um, which ultimately then uh, became the source of uh, of Colibra and, and and actually where I first had the idea of starting the company. But it's, it was an amazing experience to um, to study abroad. I highly recommend it.
0: And I mean, talking about the research, I mean, that research definitely led you, was the segue to really starting Colibra. But uh, you decided before launching it to just say, you know, do another master's degree. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's right. So at the time, my first thesis was um, uh, was in, in the area of semantic technologies, which at the time was was a big thing, um, and, and I really believed in in the power of semantic technology. And I remember uh, my, the goal of my my first thesis was around for me building a better Google. Now that didn't work, but it was ultimately leveraging semantic technologies, basically the ability not just under, to, to the ability to understand what web pages are about on, on a semantic uh, level and to then build a better search engine. Uh, it was interesting, some of those technologies are actually used uh, by Google, not not anything that I made, but the concepts. Um, but so that was really, really fascinating. And so in my second thesis, I continued to work closely with that lab at the University of Brussels, uh, where I initially studied, um, to focus on data integration and how do you uh, improve data integration, which was a, a big problem at the time, kind of solved uh, kind of simple simply by kind of point to point integrations, and I figured there's a better way to actually solve it through kind of a shared model, like a hub and spoke, just much more efficient. So I did my second master thesis on, on that topic. I started, um, uh, doing research at the university, like I was a part time researcher, and so the professor wanted me to start then my, my PhD at the, at the lab, but I ultimately wanted to build things, not necessarily write about it, and so I, I'm much more of a builder, so that wasn't. That exciting to me and then in my mind the other option that i had as as uh, having being a graduate on computer science i could work in a the bank they need a lot of um uh, it personnel or i could go into consulting which a lot of uh, a lot of people were doing in my in my class which also didn't sound that uh, incredibly exciting so ultimately i said well um why don't i start a company and i remember in belgium at the time there weren't a lot of other kind of startups so there weren't a lot of great examples but I remember reading a book called Founders at Work. It's a bit of an old book now, but I highly recommend it. And It talks about some of the, the stories from Silicon Valley, how Adobe was started and, and, and things like that. I was so inspired to hear all of these stories. And in all my, I think, youthful uh, naivety and ignorance, I figured, well, if they can do it, why, why should I? And let's just give it a try. And so that's really how, how I, 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 uh, I started with the idea of let's let's start a company. And ultimately, that uh, that that's where we are today.
0: That's amazing, uh, Felix. Because I actually had that same experience reading that book from Jessica Livingston. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and was was quite eye opener. Uh, but yeah. you know, it's it, it's it's also interesting here because I mean, I, I was I was born and raised in 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 Europe as well. And and there in Europe, I mean, when you started the business, we're talking about 2008. Uh, obviously, Europe has come a long way when it comes to startups, but. At that point, it was very green. So was it a big culture shock for your parents to hear that one of their children, you know, is not going to be a, you know, a lawyer or or maybe like a banker or a consultant, as you were saying? Yeah, it's interesting. My my
1: mom is a lawyer, actually. My dad's a, a doctor. And so, but I always felt very kind of supported by them. And then I think the risk that, that I took, I, I always thought it was relative because I knew with a degree in computer science, I'm going to get a job. Like if this doesn't work out, I'm going to get a job tomorrow. And that, that's a lot of. I think you have that safety net, which is, which is is valuable. But it wasn't. There weren't a lot of, of great examples there. And I remember at the at the university, I, I ultimately did another master in, in general management, kind of an MBA, uh, kind of to to um, in the year that we started writing the business plan for Klubga. And I remember there was an, like, um, uh, an alumni event, and I, I talked I, I talk to people, and they, they, I, I told them that I wanted to start a software company, a software startup, an enterprise software startup. And they basically laughed at me. They said, like, enterprise software, it's, it's, it's dead. Nobody's investing in enterprise software. Oracle, IBM, SAP, they've won that market. But remember that was 2007. At the time, it was all Web 2.0, right? It was Flickr and, and picture sharing. SaaS didn't even exist. And, and so for me, that was just not a, a chip, chip on my shoulder to say, well, I'm going to prove them wrong and, uh, and not listen. Uh, and, and here we are. And it's amazing how, how much the world has changed over the last 10 years.
0: That's amazing. So tell us about then, you know, like bringing this to life and in that process as well. I mean, what was that team that, that you assembled at the beginning? What was that founding team like?
1: Yeah, we were four co-founders. So all of us, we, we studied and did research at the university in Brussels on that same lab around uh, semantic technology. And so none of us really had worked before. So it's not not perfect. I think it goes against all of the the recommendations. We had almost zero working experience. And we really didn't have a problem to solve. We were really enamored by the technology, the semantic technology, the potential. But we had to figure out what problem we wanted to solve. And we didn't really have any industry and practical experience. So uh, it's not a a perfect start. And actually, um, you you see some of the impact uh, down the line. We were really focused on, okay, we want to build a great company. And so we started, uh, started doing that, wrote the business plan version one, two, three, four, until I think 13 or so. And then ultimately, 2008, so after about a year of preparation, we raised a seat, a seat around. We raised about seven, 800,000 euros, which at the time for 23 year old uh, people with zero work experience was, was quite a, a lot of money. And we we're able to do that based on kind of the, the credibility we had coming from the university. And so we raised that June 2008, got started, uh, quit our jobs, and then August, September, financial crisis hit, which was um, an interesting experience. But ultimately, I think for us it was, was a good thing for two reasons. Um, one, where we initially fu- ultimately found our product market fit was with financial services, was with banks, because after the financial crisis, they had to comply to a lot of new regulations. And Colibri now at that time being focused on data governance um, was, a, was a great fit for what they at the time needed. So it, it helped actually uh, found our, our product market fit. But it also gave us time to actually uh, mature, understand our, or the, the problem we wanted to solve, learn. Um, so there wasn't a lot of competitive pressure from the beginning. It did take a long time from 2008 to 2012. Uh, it, was, it was really difficult. It was really survival mode. Uh, but ultimately, we, we, we found our, our, our market. And we were the first to market and that has, um, has has been a big
0: part of our success today. So for the people that are listening so that they get it, what ended up being the business model of CoLibra? Yeah, so we're, we're an enterprise software company.
1: Uh, we, we sell now data intelligence at the time data governance. So ultimately we help typically large companies better um, understand, trust, control, and find the data that they have. Think of it like in the, the, the Amazonification for data. So we have a a data catalog where people can actually shop for data sets. Uh, But more so from a governance perspective, we also help them uh, make sure that they understand what the quality is, uh, that they comply with regulation, whether that's privacy regulations or uh, financial reporting regulations.
0: Understood. Uh, And obviously here for you, this experience, especially during the early days, I mean, you were talking about how the first four years were all about survival. Uh, I'm sure that you that you learned quite a bit about how, how to or how not to spend your money before you hit product market fit. What could you tell us about this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and literally, I think there's a, a Dutch saying, a Belgian saying, not sure if it translates to English, but we, 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 um, we flipped every euro that we had twice or, or four times before we spent it. So we were very, very frugal, uh, extremely frugal. As we traveled to the U.S., uh, some of our customers or prospects initially were in the U.S. We shared the, the cheapest hotel rooms you can imagine and not great circumstances, I think a lot of entrepreneurs go through that. So we've been, we were extremely uh, frugal because we had to basically last four years with that 800,000 euros uh, that we raised in the beginning in our seed round with very little revenue coming in. So extremely frugal. And I, I remember really well, I think it was 2010 or 2011, we had about two months of money left in the bank. So uh, if nothing came in, we, we would have been uh, bankrupt basically in, after two months the founders had already cut our, our own salary just to survive and not have to fire anybody. And basically the only people that we had were a few engineers, so that was critical that we kept them. And, I, and we were working on a deal on an um, a, a potential customer uh, in, in a Belgian government. And I know it was a public tender, like a, a, a public government uh, um, uh, company. And we were competing with IBM, that which we knew. Um, and so we had to go to that public tender RFP process. And, and as part of that uh, process, we had to, Put a price on, on our solution, and it was a very kind of public kind of calculation who would win that process. And ultimately, um, uh, what w- what happened is that we won that deal against IBM predominantly because we were a thousand euros cheaper than IBM. And so we had no idea w- what IBM was going to come into. But if if we wouldn't have won that deal, there was a high likelihood that Clivia wouldn't exist today. So it's just interesting to realize um some of these small moments have a, a really big impact now, i remember that weekend we were waiting for the uh, for the results to uh, um to come back and whether we won or not i, I was just just i don't know just i, I couldn't do anything that weekend almost like paralyzed in it like com- com- combination of fear and anxiety and stress and not knowing what to do and what i will what would i do if Kuliba doesn't work so going through all of these emotions is, is something that you do as an especially early stage as an entrepreneur but that's something that i'll, I'll never forget
0: And how how did you learn how to be with those emotions? Because sometimes getting out of your own way and getting out of your own head, you know, is really the way, you know, to push forward.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think it's so important, even today with everything going on right now. And I talk about it a lot um, with the team. It's building that resilience, like things are going to go wrong significantly. And I think what makes it extra hard as an entrepreneur is that you project forward. Like if you have a good day, you think you're going to conquer the world and you're like ecstatic. And if you have a bad day, you, you project forward and think this is go- going to go nowhere. What am I doing? And so there's, there's so much extremes between those emotions from ecstatic to um, panic almost. And you constantly switch between those. And that actually makes, I think, the entrepreneurial journey a, hard, a really hard journey. Um, but that is how, do, how do you deal with that? And, and then building that resilience is important. Um, kind of the way I work, I'm stressed at work, so to speak, but I need then calm and tranquility, I think, outside of work. And so family, friends are, are important. Um, and, and something that I've, I've thought about a lot, like what's the silver bullet kind of based on my experience, and I think every journey is unique. But having that growth mindset and, and every no is a reason to learn, is a reason to understand why, the why behind everything. And that's just kind of my mindset. Uh, and I always kind of uh, want to understand, want to understand the why, want to understand how I'm getting better. And so you always push yourself out of your comfort zone so in that sense, having that growth mindset, I think, is ex- extremely important as an entrepreneur.
0: And obviously, that was, that was a, a mindset that served you well when raising your Series A, a Series A of a million, which back then, you know, like was, was I mean, now you're seeing Series A's that go up to 100 million, which is insane. Yeah. But obviously, you know, back then it was a different uh, scene. So what, what would you say was the hardest part about, about raising that Series A? It was it was definitely the hardest round. Like in the seed in the seed round you, you basically you sell the
1: dream, you sell promises, there's not much to show. So people either believe you or not. It's all about you and, and the confidence that you, you get from people. So that's that makes seed round hard, but also not, not super hard. Once you get to series A, you have to prove something, right? Um, you need the initial you need the product to work, you need the initial customers. So you can't just sell the dream anymore. So at least at that time it was a lot harder to just sell the dream. And so that was a really difficult uh, round for us to raise also because we basically we were running out of money again we had a few months of runway left and being with your your back against the wall is never a great position to negotiate and I, I heard afterwards from the the investor who's still on our board who's a great friend now um, uh, as we were negotiating he knew that we didn't have a lot of money left but he was surprised how calm I, I stayed during those negotiations so but but I did um, kind of prom- made the promise to myself that I never want to be in that position again. So ever since, for a Series B to now a Series, I think, E that we we, we raised a couple of months ago, um, we always raised money when we didn't need it. And it's that's, that's easier said than done, but it's definitely something I would recommend everybody to do. Um, but, but that made the Series A very, very hard.
0: So what does that look like, raising money when you don't need it? So,
1: uh, well, quite, quite literally, when you don't need it, and I think, um, don't underestimate how long it, it, it takes to raise money or how long it can take, especially in the beginning. It always takes a lot longer than you would think. Um, and the other thing, like investors invest in, in lines, on in dots. So you have to build those relationships really quickly um, and, and, and early, I would say. Uh, so people ultimately build that confidence over time. So it always takes a lot of time. And you often underestimate how long it takes. And then you run out of time. And, of course, the investors know that. So they're, in a way, incentivized to wait because the longer they wait, the more pressure you are on. Um, but it's also, again, that was the situation 10 years ago. There was very few investors. And so you weren't in a great negotiation position. I think nowadays where the, 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 the environment is from an investment perspective, it might be very, very different where there's a lot more investors, a lot more demand. So you might, as a founder, be in a, in a stronger position. But I still think it, 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 um, it remains uh, hard, especially in the beginning. Once you started to grow and you have the numbers, it becomes much more of a almost like a mathematical exercise where you they see the growth, they see the numbers, they see the market. It's much more clear, and so that makes the process a lot a lot easier
0: and how much capital have you guys raised to date, Felix? Right now, I think we've raised uh, a, a little over three hundred million or so very nice, and obviously between the series A and the B round when you guys were building those relationships and and knocking on doors, you know the VCS were super shocked that you were profitable when they're like all about growth. So, so why did you decide to push for that strategy? Yeah, it was
1: a good, a good question. And so the Series B round was in a way uh, very different than a Series A round because after a Series A, we continued to grow really quickly because we found our product market fit. But again, we, we, we remained extremely frugal. Uh, and so we actually became profitable. Uh, profitable while still growing over 100%, so more than doubling every year. And I remember starting to um, talk to VCs because we, we, we felt that we had product market fit. We felt we had a really big opportunity. At the time, we actually had some acquisition interest as well, which at the time when you were 26, 27-year-old would still be kind of life-changing. But um, the way we thought about it is like, how often do you have the opportunity where, I mean, timing and luck in a way plays a role as well because you have to be at the right place at the right time. And so we had an opportunity now and we, we made the decision for ourselves to actually go for it and really try to build a large, successful independent company so we made that made that switch and so we decided okay let's raise a larger investment round to really start scaling growing aggressively moving to the us uh, and so that's when we, we decided to raise a series um, a series a series b round which was a lot easier given that we were growing so quickly and in that process i i was i was doing the the tour in sand hill road and, and silicon valley and i remember the reaction of some of those silicon valley investors they were very surprised that we were profitable and it was almost like a negative, like the, the fact that we were profitable to, in their eyes meant that we didn't know how to spend more money to grow even quicker, which wasn't the, 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 the mindset that we had at all. We, just, we were grown up with that frugal mindset given, coming from Belgium and Europe. Uh, but that was really interesting to see just that contrast.
0: And, and in this case, I mean, obviously in, in, in Belgium, you know, great chocolate, great beer. I mean, why, why moving to New York?
1: Why moving to New York? It's, um, it's, we followed our customers. So from the beginning, we were very customer focused. Uh, like we were profitable, just followed our customers. Uh, that was the most important thing. We weren't focused on investors. We were really focused on customers. And like, like I said, our initial product market fit, we found with all the large banks. And so there's not a lot of big banks in Belgium. The big banks are in London and, and in New York, typically. That's where they're concentrated. New York, we could easily do from, from, from Brussels. That's an hour and a half with the train. Uh, but of course, New York, we, we we couldn't, and we did believe in presence creates opportunity. Just having boots on the ground creates opportunity. It's so much easier to get things done instead of having to plan travel, and then it takes a month for you to meet the the, the prospect another time. And so we decided to just follow our customers, follow where uh, the interest was, and so decided to, to um, set up a small sales office in New York. Um, it's one of my beliefs. I think if you move to to the US as as a small uh, company. Um, one of the founders have to, has to come as well. You can't just hire a sales manager and then have them do it. Like one of the founders has to move. So one of our founders moved to New York. Then the second moved. I, I basically spent all my time going back and forth between Brussels and, and New York. And then once we decided to start really scaling, raise a Series B, I decided to move full-time to New York because that's where the, the majority of our market was. It was 70%, 70% of our revenue at the time, it still is. Um, and that's where we ultimately decided to, to really scale the company.
0: So here is a different environment in the U.S., you know, different culture, different mindset, different way of building and scaling companies, and also a different way and a different perspective from investors towards those early stage companies. So what were some of the uh, challenges that you experienced when moving here? Because I'm sure that there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are listening to us now and, and maybe thinking about making that move as well. So what were some of the challenges in your own journey of moving here? Yeah, you have you have just the administration and just
1: challenges around that and visa and all of that, which which is, which is a challenge. Um, but from a business perspective, I think uh, what was hard for us is really f- is hiring the right people because nobody knows you. You're like a, a, a no name, no brand coming from Belgium, uh, so it's really hard hard to attract the right people, and it's hard. Kind of uh, what I found is as a European to assess who would the right people be. Like the interview and the, the 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 answers that you get is just very different than what I was used to in um, in Belgium. So we did, we did a lot of um, wrong hires, which were costly and frustrating. So I thought that was really difficult. And that's why having a um, an investor that's active in the US, uh, we, we, we raise money with Index Ventures, who's active in Europe and in the US, was actually very, very helpful because they can give you the network, they can introduce you with great recruiters to actually start growing your company in, in the US. So I think that was... Uh, difficult and um uh, and and really valuable. Uh, the other thing that I was surprised by is and its combination of of the u s plus kind of started to grow, really scale and grow the company is how expensive everything is and and becomes because once you start growing, you need a lot of support, you need recruiters and h r and finance and legal. so there's a lot, of, a lot of kind of operations, and I was really surprised how expensive uh, things became plus of course new york is is much more expensive than uh, brussels uh, Brussels is so Uh, Not a good thing that we we raised quite a a large Series B around, about 20 million euros, which was a good thing because uh, if you you think how long we were able to kind of survive and be successful on basically 2 million euros and then how much we we started spending and investing once we came to the US, it was really an order of magnitude difference. And so that was a surprise to me. So I think a a word of caution as you move to the US, make sure that you're ready for it and then make sure that you also raise enough money because starting to scale here is, is a lot more expensive.
0: Got it. So now coming here to the U.S., you are now in full scale and the growth mode. So at what, what what does that look like? Uh, because, you know, there's there's a big shift that happens when you are moving from early stage to growth stage. What is that shift? What, what does that shift look like? Yeah, it's and it's a, it's a continuous kind of shift like every year. And I talk
1: a lot about the, the team. Every year, you are a different company. If you're growing at 100%, which we've been doing over the last couple of years, every six months to a year, you're you're literally a different company. Every year, we have to hire almost more people than we had at the start of the year. Um, So at the end of the year, there's going to be more people that have been with you less than a year than you had more than a year. And that that just puts a lot of pressure on culture, on values, on processes. Uh, Your job as a CEO founder has to evolve. And it goes back to the growth mindset that I talked about. It's really important at the beginning from a resilience perspective. But your job has to continue to evolve and, and, and changing something that quickly isn't natural to anybody. Like you're going to exponential change, exponential growth. And people, we are, we are good at understanding linear growth because most things in nature kind of grow linearly. There's very few things that grow exponentially. And we always underestimate how quickly it actually goes. And so just keeping up with that is, is a real challenge. And, and it goes across the whole organization it starts from your job as CEO you have to ad- adopt ad- adapt and change if, you, if you're still doing the same things you were doing a year ago that's a problem um, to putting in the right culture the right processes, the right values uh, you don't want to be become a bureaucratic organization but th- th- the way you work when you're six hundred fifty people which we are today versus three hundred people versus one hundred fifty people versus fifty people is different and so you have to adjust and so you have to get the people in your organization to Um, go with that, go with that change and, 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 um, adopt that adjustment. And and that's really, that's really difficult because it's not something that anybody, um, typically finds easy that change. And so that's a, it's all about change. It became one of our values. So we embrace and drive change is something we talk about constantly in the organization because we are constantly kind of going through it and you don't, you don't just embrace it. You actually have to drive it, which is uncomfortable.
0: And one, one thing is the changes or the transformation that the that the company goes through. Uh and the other change or transformation is the one that you yourself as the CEO slash founder goes through because the company needs different things from you as it grows and mature. And in many instances, it outgrows the founder, unfortunately. So in this case for you, I mean you've been at it now with the business for twelve years, which is remarkable. How would you say that your role as the CEO slash founder has evolved over the course of time.
1: Yeah, very much so. And, and it's, it's also, what, again, based on my, my single experience, but something I truly believe in, I think probably one of the hardest years that I had to go to was probably around 2015, where we had to evolve from what I, ca- what I call a founder-driven company to an uh, kind of executive-driven company. And of course, founders, founder DNA, remain kind of extremely important. Um, but, but, but you have to bring in more senior executives, more senior leaders that have seen some of that journey before to help you scale. If you can't do it, there's just no way you can keep up with the growth and you're going to become the bottleneck. And that's a problem. As you, the CEO, become the bottleneck of the growth, frankly, you're not doing justice to your employees, to your customers, and to your shareholders. And so you have to be willing, and that's a really hard transition, kind of personally, right? Because you have to make some really difficult decisions. You're changing the company. You're saying goodbye to things you don't want to say goodbye to. Um, but you have to transition from that founder-focused company to a real kind of professional executive-focused company. But that's extremely important. And, and so one of the pivotal things that we did when I started to do it in 2015 is really hire my first management team, my first executive team, and bring in the right talent from uh, the first, first hire that I made is probably one of, still one of my best hires, is a chief people officer, something that I, I recommend everyone to do Earlier than they think they need it, but get, because it can be such a big help as you transition your company from that founder driven phase to so the executive driven phase. Um, and then hire a, a CFO, a a chief revenue officer, a a chief marketing officer, a a chief product officer, like people that have seen the scale before um, is, is extremely, extremely important. And that's, I think, one of your most important jobs as a founding CEO to build a team around you, because if you don't, then you're going to struggle and you're going to become the bottleneck, and that's a problem.
0: Understood. Understand. Uh, and and in this case, in this case, Felix, I mean, for you, I mean, obviously, you guys just raised uh, Series F, literally announced in April, uh, which is remarkable in the middle of the crazy pandemic that mm-hmm. we've never seen something like this. I mean, not even my parents or grandparents have seen something like this. Uh, yeah. But 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 you were able to announce uh, this round. I mean, which is incredible when things were really drying up on the. Investors, them trying to adjust to the new normality, this Zoom thing, video conference. So, how do you successfully operate a company during during a crisis of this nature?
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's not easy, and uh, if, a lot of things change. I think on the round is a great example. Sorry, of um, raising money when you don't need it. So we started those discussions in January when we didn't need it. Ultimately, we're really happy that we did, um, and it's. It, it, I think the things that you need in, in good times you need even more so in in bad times and clearly we've been through some very troubling times over the last couple of months and so uh, it goes back to communication is extremely important people want to know how things are going i think you need to be honest and authentic i really believe authenticity is one of the most important things that you have i think as a founder you have like an unfair advantage because it gives you that moral authority given a founder but it only works if people see you are being authentic and so that's extremely important and it's important that you communicate the good things it's important that you communicate the bad things even if if that's a lot harder uh, so many communication is important something we found ourselves leaning much more even on is our values and our culture uh, and, and really using those as the guide as we make tough decisions which you have to make in an environment like this always going back to our values our culture is it the right thing uh, based on our culture uh, and that's really impar- uh, really powerful and it helps kind of keep everybody everybody together and then going back to resilience and, and talk about okay how do you deal with all of this like there's work but there's also life and there's, there's life beyond the work and and be empathetic about what people go through uh, i think it's really really important as well um, and so it's, it's 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 a different environment uh, but but kind of leaning on the foundation that you've built over the years hopefully they're really strong um i think worked really well for us
0: and and in this case i mean obviously now during this time you know you've been able to really see and and the process of really needing that data to uh, understand, you know, and have better workflows and, and things of that nature. I, I think that during a pandemic like this, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like essential to really be able to optimize yeah. certain things of the, of the operations. So what are some of the challenges that, that you see companies facing when it comes to data?
1: Yeah, I mean, there were massive challenges before because we've really seen the an explosion in data, not just in the volume of data, but also the amount of people that actually consume data, produce data, work with data, need data. And that's really what we're focused on because it's a lot of chaos and you need to, you need to make it just more, much more easy for people uh, to get access to trusted data. And that's really what we do. And you've seen it even more so now in, in the pandemics when you look at all the reporting and the questions around, well, how many cases were there? And okay, how do we count the case? And, and is that the same across countries? And can we really compare those, uh, those data points? It, it all goes back to trust and trust in data, which is really what we focus on. And that was important in 2008 in the financial crisis and a big problem. And it's important in this crisis as well. So always going back to that trust in data is just critical. Uh, So that only kind of reinforces the need for data governance and data intelligence, what we do. But then also the other thing we've seen is that uh, acceleration towards digital transformation, right? People now understand, I mean, everybody's working remotely. Um, It's accelerating that shift towards digital transformation. And digital transformation is built upon data. Data is the foundation, is the foundation for Artificial intelligence, machine learning, Internet of Things, uh, all of that is basically built on data. And so if you don't have that great foundation, it becomes really problematic. And so for us, ultimately, we believe it's a good thing. Now, obviously, a lot of companies are going through very difficult times, and we're also very uh, um, supportive of our, of our customers in that context. But data has only become much more important, uh, even, even, even while it was already uh, uh, very important before.
0: So how would you say that, for example, like the customers that you see, like what are the typical ways in which they are using data to, to tackle challenges?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's ultimately uh, an abstract is how do you get to outcomes faster? And it really depends on what the customer wants, customer wants to do. So we have a lot of customers in, like I said, banking, financial services, healthcare. So there's a lot of compliance needs, like reporting that they need to provide to the regulators to show that they have their business under control. And so if they can do that faster, more efficiently, more effectively, that really makes a, a massive difference. And so we help them do that because ultimately the, those numbers and reports come from a whole different set of data points, databases, and it's actually incredibly complex to bring that all together and then come up with a number that everybody can trust and kind of stand behind. And So that's something that we help the customers with. Um, now with privacy, again, as data has become much more important, uh, how do we make sure we, we have the right privacy controls uh, in place so that uh, our customers, our consumers of that data, or of the companies, can actually trust that their data is, treat, is being treated correctly. And so, again, you need to understand what data you have, where it is, who's being, u- who's using it, are they using it for the right reasons, and how do, you, as, an, as a company, how do you manage and coordinate all of that? And that's again something that we help our customers with. And then the other thing is, is um, that digital transformation. It's all about getting better customer insights, getting better product insights, uh, moving to the cloud. All of investing in AI, machine learning, it's all based on data sets. Um, So how do you make sure people have easy access to that data? And the way we think about it is is like the Amazonification of data. So just like you shop on Amazon for products, and the next day they deliver it uh, to your door, uh, we want to have the same experience from a data perspective. So if I need a data set, I can just shop for it in my data catalog, and, and it just gets delivered to me in a very easy and trustworthy way. And, and Joe, it just makes
0: my life a lot a lot easier. So imagine, if Felix, that today you go to bed and you have a tremendous news. You sleep for literally five years and you wake up in a world where the vision of Colibra is fully realized. What does that world look like? Oh, that's a great question.
1: I think um, ultimately we really want to become that, that, that almost that data marketplace where, where, where we almost become the brokerage of data. And so if I'm a consumer of data, I, I almost like put a request on that marketplace, say, hey, I want to do this analysis. I need that type of data. Please give it to me. And so as, as a producer, if I have access to data, I can actually make it available on the marketplace. It's almost become that brokerage between um, consumers and producers of data, where we leverage AI machine learning to automatically kind of stitch data together and truly build that, that data marketplace in, in a way that's trustworthy, compliance, um, um, privacy aware, uh, privacy by design—all these things that are incredibly important. That—that that I would say that's what we call truly data intelligence. And so that's the—that's the big vision.
0: And obviously, to accomplish that, you know, and to really uh, get this rocket ship to go to the to the right place, you need a, a great team. So, how how many people do you have right now as part of the team? Yeah, right now we have about six hundred fifty people. Wow. So, so how do you think about culture? Because I'm sure that. You know, for all these people, you know, first the culture, you are the one as the founder that really established it. And then people are getting inspired and, and live by it. So what does the culture for CoLibra look like?
1: Yeah, and we, we actually uh, codified our culture, I think, in 2014 when we started to grow really quickly. And, and it's, it has to be authentic, right? It has to be coming from the founders, but also broader kind of to, to the team that you have at that time. And so we did a lot of you know, surveys, work with the team to come up with the six values that we have. So one of them is, is one Colibra. We all work together, collaborate. Um, um, we, we kind of share success and share failure. It's a really big uh, kind of value, value that we have. Um, we're the customer champion. We're very customer oriented. Like I said, we, we were from that from the beginning. We follow the customers. We didn't follow investors. It's still a, a big value that we have um, in Colibra. In we are um, open, direct, and kind. I think was, uh, again, a really important value that we have. It's about, we're very respectful. But we also want to be very open uh, and direct about what's working, what's not working, but always in a kind of respectful, respectful way. It's not an excuse to be an be an asshole, so to speak. So that's a really important uh, important value as well. And it's important that you codify that, that you live and breathe those values. And if we do the, the if we ask around, you really you really feel that that these are real um, real values at the company, and people care about them a lot.
0: Absolutely. So so obviously now it's been. Quite a, quite a ride with Colibra, Felix, and you know, I'm sure that you've had your fair amount of successes and failures that you've been able to learn from and to reflect mm-hmm. and to push forward from. Uh, but if you had the opportunity to go back in time, you know perhaps to that time where you were still in school and thinking about launching something, uh, knowing what you know now, what would be that one piece of business advice that you, you would give to that younger Felix before launching a business? Yeah, it's, it's,
1: it's, a good, it's, a, it's a good question. I ultimately think I, I wouldn't do much different. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of small things that would be very different, but they're kind of tactical things. Um, there's also not just one kind of silver bullet for success. It's just too complex, and every, every story is unique. Um, but I think kind of trusting in yourself and having that growth mindset, wanting uh, to understand, building that resilience, putting yourself out of your comfort zone, And in a way, trusting that things will work out, not automatically, but through a lot of hard work, um, I think ultimately is the the most important thing because it it, it kind of prepares you for whatever that comes at you and and, and you never know what's going to come at you and it keeps changing every day. Look at what we're going through now. So having the right mindset is, I think, ultimately the most, most important.
0: Very nice. And for the people that are listening, Felix, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi?
1: Um... Email is probably easiest. It's easy. It's Uh, Felix at uh So uh, happy to welcome
0: any email. Amazing. Well, Felix, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Happy to. Happy to. Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember,